Good morning. Well, welcome to our summer series, the first part of a series we're calling Roots. It's going to be a look through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. If you start reading at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. You know, when we teach at LifePoint, there's a team of us, and we sit around and, and, and we pray and we say, God, what do you want our church to hear? Not just what sounds cool and what can make cool art and titles and all that, but what do people really need to hear? And the way we determine that is we, we pray and just topics are revealed. Sometimes we get a clear topic like marriage or finances or prayer or faith. And then we go to the scriptures and we see what Jesus has to say about a particular topic and then how we can apply that to our lives in ways that will help us change and in ways that will help more people connect with God. That's primarily the way we teach. Then there's another way to teach. There's another way where you just open up the Bible and you begin to read about the Bible from a cultural perspective. You look and think, okay, what did this mean originally and what does that mean for us today? And then you see how that applies to your life based on what the Scripture says. Both are very effective ways to be taught and to learn God's Word and to allow allow us to connect with God. Well, this summer, for several weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts, the latter explanation of how you present God's scripture, and looking into that book and just seeing how it applies to our lives. For about eight weeks, we're going to look at this book that was written 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, we can start to read about how the first century church began to change its world. Anybody ever go to Ancestry.com? Anybody ever do that? Tell the truth. Come on. Yeah, you do. You do, don't you? I I did that once. My brother-in-law had an account, and he said, you got to check this out. So I started looking at Ancestry.com and, and, you know, got my sister up there and then went back and back and back. And I found out that my family's pretty much a mutt. I mean, there's not like... There's not one place I could find like this as our heritage. We We were strong Scots or fighting Irishmen. None of that stuff. Couldn't find it. I also found out that my last name is the third most popular name in English-speaking countries. So good luck on finding where you came from because there's, you know, my name is out there everywhere. So it just didn't work. But why do people go to Ancestry.com? Why do you want to do that? You do it because you want to know, where did I come from? What are my roots? What's the origin of my family? Did something happen way back there that's, that's either going to make me ashamed or going to make me proud? I mean... That's that's why people go. That's why they look. That's what the first century church is to us. That's what the book of Acts is. It's the ancestry, the origin, or the roots of the church that exists today. So when you see the name church and people are seeking to follow Christ, you can trace all the way back 2,000 years and see where it all began, and how this small group of people who said, we, we are in on this message of Jesus Christ. We want to take this message and change the world with it. We're going to read about that today and for the rest of the summer. The book of Acts is kind of like, it's kind of like, it's a combination of like a, a novel and a newspaper. If there was such a thing called the Jerusalem Journal or the Nazareth News, I mean, that's what would have, what goes, takes place in Acts is what would have been in it. 
I mean, you would, it's like a newspaper account of what happened with the first century church. But at times it also reads like an exciting novel. If the book of Acts were ever put on the screen, it would require the skills of some of the world's greatest actors to bring it to life. As we see this small band of people, less than, less than 200, say, we want to take this message and change the world with it. And all the things they go through, the ups and the downs and trying to figure out how to deal with people who were against them and how to ask more people to follow this person called Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is really exciting. And I hope what we do this summer with it causes you to get one of those Bibles that's coming down the aisles right now and going up the aisles. And if you don't have one, raise your hand. We give these out every week at LifePoint because every person needs to have a Bible in their hand. And if you don't have one, take it. It's yours to keep. Just look in the front. There's an index. It'll tell you where the book of Acts is in the New Testament. And you can read along with us today or you can follow on the screen as we put the scriptures up there. I encourage you to take notes. There's a note uh, sheet in your program. There's pens at the end of the aisle. Take some notes about this book called Acts. Here's some quick facts about it. The book of Acts was written about 30 years after the death, after Jesus Christ lived on earth. The book of Acts is the second longest book in the New Testament. Most scholars believe, I mean, we don't have autographed copies, so they've got to kind of use some deductive reasoning to figure out who wrote it. Most scholars believe it was written by a guy named Luke. Luke also wrote another book in the Bible named Luke. You know, I don't know how they figured out what to name him, but anyway, they named it Luke. Tells us that Luke wrote it, and Luke way more than likely, more likely than not, wrote the book of Acts. The interesting thing about Luke is he's like us. He was not an eyewitness that followed Jesus around while he was on earth. Luke, like us, heard about Jesus from people who followed him. People who said, Luke, you've got to listen to this message about Jesus Christ. And he was so compelled by it, he was so changed by it, that he wrote two sets of writings, one about Jesus and one about the church. And I can imagine him thinking, This is so powerful, somebody's got to write it down. And after he decided to accept Christ and began to follow him, the Holy Spirit worked through his life to write these two books down, one of which is the book of Acts. Those two writings together make up 25% of all of the New Testament. Book number one, Luke, tells about Jesus. helps people get to know Jesus. Book number two talks about Jesus' followers and his church. The book of Acts in 28 chapters covers the first 30 years of the Jesus movement or the church. Now, it's going to be impossible as we're looking at this book for me to go through every sentence. Not only would that be boring, we don't have enough time to do it. So just like when you read the newspaper, you open it up, you go to the headlines that seem interesting. You go to the things that are like, wow, I want to read a little more about that. So when I'm preparing these messages, I'm thinking... Here's a headline that would really apply to somebody's life. Here's something that we really need to take note of and write down. I'm going to pull those headlines out, and that's what we're going to talk about this summer. We're looking at this book through two lenses. The first lens is, what did it mean for the people who first heard it? Did you ever read the Bible and think, what in the world does that mean? That doesn't make any sense for today. Maybe it doesn't, but it made sense for the people who originally heard this. So we're going to look at it through the lens of what would it have been like to be living in the first few centuries and get this 
book or fragment of it, which is how they got it. They didn't have a book nicely bound up in leather that cost $80 uh, that, that came into their house. They had little fragments that people delivered to them in different churches. And what would it have been like for those people to have read that? That's one lens. The other lens is, what do these writings have to say to us today? Because we believe these words are true. The Bible says about itself that the Word of God is living and active. So as this Word is living and active, how does it apply to our lives? So those are the two lenses as we start in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. This book's addressed to a guy named Theophilus or a group of people. It's referring to one or the other. It really doesn't matter. Scholars don't agree, and I'm not smart enough to figure it out. So it's one of those two. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this takes place after Jesus had risen from the dead. And it says for 40 days he hung out with his disciples, the guys that he had been with through all of his earthly ministry. So wouldn't you think that whatever he's got to talk about for those 40 days is pretty important? I mean, he rose from the dead. He's hanging out for 40 more days. I bet the disciples were sitting there with a notepad and a pen saying, Okay, Jesus, feed us. Tell us what you want to talk about. Which brings us to the first headline we can pull out of this section of Scripture. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. So whatever the kingdom of God is must be pretty important. Because Jesus had 40 days physically left with his disciples, and he talks about the kingdom of God. Not only was it important, I think he talked about it because they didn't get it. They didn't understand what the kingdom of God was all about. After being with Jesus for three years, they still didn't get what Jesus was saying when he said kingdom of God. See, in their minds, when, when, when they heard Jesus say kingdom... And maybe even today, when you think kingdom, you think king, you think palace, you think a big throne, you think military, you think politically, that there's this kingdom. And that's what they continually thought. And Jesus spent a lot of time on earth trying to say, this is what my kingdom is. It's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. And he died was buried and resurrected, and somehow they still didn't get it. They were still waiting on, hey, I'm in the inner circle, they were thinking. How am I going to get to sit in the king's court? That's what they were thinking, physical. And Jesus is trying to say the kingdom of God is not a church. It's not an organization. It's not a denomination. It's not a system of beliefs. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is simply, this is what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is the rule of God in the hearts of his people. It's the kingdom of God is the rule of God in the hearts of his people. When Jesus was saying the Lord's Prayer, 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He's not saying, God, bring your kingdom on earth and set it up. He's saying, God, may you rule in the hearts of people. Now, that was, if that was hard for them to get then, I believe it's even harder today in a materialistic world that just thinks materially, that just thinks in the physical, and it's hard to move people over to the spiritual. Because if there's one kingdom that we understand today, it's not the kingdom of God, it's the kingdom of me. Everybody gets the kingdom of me, right? It's my kingdom. It's me. That's what I live my life for, is to create the kingdom of me. Think about how we use the internet today. In the early 90s, when I was finishing up school, I can remember this thing called the internet that was finally here. We'd heard about it for 10 years, and if you walked across campus to the computer lab, there were like four websites you could visit, and you could do a little bit of research. So the internet was primarily developed as a research tool to connect all these other computers. And it was really cool, you know, you know you'd act all smart and say, I'm going to go over and get on the internet and the computer lab and look something up in the National Archives or whatever you could access. But somewhere it transitioned from this, this tool that allowed us to do research to a tool that allows us to promote ourselves, right? One of my former students, this is not a joke, eHarmony.com, found a girl on eHarmony.com. They got married. They're in that commercial. One time I'm watching TV and I'm like, oh my gosh, I guess it works. Or he's got a job acting or something. But it really worked. They got online, they promoted themselves, and they got married. It worked so well, I think two or three of his friends did the same thing. A couple of them even got on the commercial because they promoted themselves. Now tell the truth, how many of you are on Facebook? Come on now. That's right. A lot of you are my friends on Facebook. Several months ago, I finally said, all right, everybody says do Facebook. Because I used to say, like a year or so ago, not a chance. Like, I got time to do that. I got, one, I got time to do one more thing. Yeah. And then I did it. And it was like, this feels good. You know, I can <laughs> tell people about myself and there's no commitment because I just put it out there. And you know, it's, whether you want to read it or not is up to you. And I can decide who my friends are and who they aren't and who I talk to. And it promotes me. And if you're on Facebook or MySpace or something like that, it's, it's to promote you. That's what it's for. It's not a bad thing, but we definitely understand how to promote ourselves. Finally, I made the jump and started doing Twitter. Oh, I know. You're saying, oh, you drank the Kool-Aid. Why'd you do that? I, I, have, it, I have it on my phone. I'm not kidding. In fact... This is how addicted we are to promoting ourselves. In the first service, I'm not exaggerating, I, I sent a Twitter. I said, you know, I told everybody the same thing I'm telling you now. And so I sent one, and two people have already responded. One responded and said, sitting in church watching Donnie send a tweet. <laughs> and then another person said, if you tweet your whole messages, you wouldn't have a need for a building. <laughs> All because I'm on here promoting myself. If you're, if you're out of a job and you want a job, you get your resume out there to promote you, the kingdom of me. That's what the disciples were doing on a group level. They were concerned about the kingdom of them. And Jesus was spending these 40 days trying to say, it's not about you. It's not about this kingdom that you think is physical. It's about God's reign and rule in your heart. Because kingdoms, earthly kingdoms come and go. 
But once God reigns in somebody's heart, the world can change forever. Just imagine if we were aware of the rule and the reign of God in our hearts all the time. What kind of a husband or wife or child or employee or employer would we be if we were aware that the reign of God was in our hearts all the time? And see, these, these guys are sitting with Jesus and they're asking this political question. Jesus, when are you going to restore the nation of Israel? And the king, when are you going to put the kingdom of God and the nation of Israel together? We want to know. See, when, when they heard Jesus start talking about the Holy Spirit, it makes sense why they would ask this question. Because in the Old Testament, in Hebrew literature, in Hebrew scriptures, when they heard about the, this thing called the Holy Spirit, they equated that with the kingdom of God being restored on earth. So they were thinking physical every time he said kingdom of God, especially when he related it to the Holy Spirit. So he starts talking to them about the Holy Spirit. The word spirit is from a Greek word pneuma, which just means breath or air. So he's trying to get them to think spiritually, get out of the physical realm and start thinking about the spirit of God reigning in your heart. And when you do that, The world around you is going to start to change because he's trying to get these few people ready to change the world with his message. And they're not going to do that physically. It's physically impossible, but spiritually and with God, all things start to be possible. And he's trying to get them to think spiritually because he's getting ready to ask them to do something. He's getting ready to ask them to be his witness. He's saying, be my witnesses. You know, the thing about being a witness is that you don't have to be smart. You, you don't have to be good looking. You don't have to be thin or wide or tall or short. It doesn't matter. Everybody can be a witness because what a witness does, a witness relays an experience. So if you've had an experience, you can be a witness. And Jesus is saying, be my witnesses. I've had many times people who follow Christ come up to me and say, I really want to grow. And I started thinking, how many of anybody here want to grow spiritually? Of course, we all do. Maybe just to have the courage to raise my hand and say, yes, I want to grow spiritually. We all want to grow. But why? The only reason I can really see for a deep desire to grow is to grow in influence. Not just to grow in knowledge, not just to, oh, I know more, so somehow I'm better, but to grow in influence. So if you're thinking, I want to grow, make sure you put the why with it. Because the why is to be a better witness, which takes more influence. That's what Jesus is trying to tell them. Just recall the experiences you've had. You've probably watched courtroom shows where an attorney gets upset and says, I object, I object, coaching the witness. You don't have to coach a witness. A witness just talks about what they've experienced. And Jesus is saying, take my kingdom and be a witness with it. In fact, be a witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, when we read that, we hear geography. We hear three places and then the world. Okay, so there were three places Jesus wanted to go first and then take it to the world. Here's what they would have heard. When they heard Jesus say Jerusalem, they would have understood that to be 
their family, their close friends. Take this message and be a witness with it to your family and close friends. Pretty easy. After that, take it to Judea. And they would have understood Judea to be the place where they did life, where they worked day in and day out, maybe where they went to school. They would have understood Judea to be a little bit more difficult. Wouldn't it be more difficult to to be a witness to the person at work or school? He's saying after you do that, after Jerusalem, your family and close friends, after Judea, the people who you work and live around and, and maybe your neighbor and people you go to school with, after you do that, there's a third group. Samaria, the Samaritans. Jewish people hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jewish people. Jewish people considered Samaritans a half-breed, part Babylonian, part uh, part uh, Hebrew, and they just didn't they, they just didn't like them. They never got along. They were enemies. So he's saying, after you take my message and be witnesses with the kingdom of God in these two places, now go to your enemies. That's much more difficult to share a message of hope with somebody that you consider to be your enemy. Because most of our enemies, we don't want them to have hope, right? Because they're bad people, right? They're our enemy, they must be terrible. So why would I want to share hope with my enemies? And Jesus said, if you do it at home, and you do it in the world you live, you're going to have the strength to do it with your enemies. And from there, you can take this message to the very ends of the earth. And obviously, because we're sitting here today, these guys took it seriously. Being a witness should be natural. It should be a natural thing. Prior to June 6, 1992, at 1.30 o'clock in the afternoon, I had a choice of whether or not I wanted to be a husband. It's a choice. After that day, after that hour, I didn't have a choice whether or not I was going to be a husband. My choice was then whether or not I was going to be a good one or a bad one. That was the choice. If you've made a decision to follow Christ, there's no choice to be a witness or not to be a witness. The only choice is, am I going to be a good one or am I going to be a bad one? Jesus is saying, when you are a witness, you're building the kingdom of God and every heart that changes and makes me their Lord, the kingdom grows. And after Jesus shares with them about the kingdom, And he shares with them about being a witness. It says that he goes off into the sky, leaves their sight, and that episode is over. In Acts chapter 1, verse 12, they're getting ready to get serious about spreading this message. It says, They returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, a couple of headlines from this section. If you you read the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, all of them are named after guys. If you read those, you read about Jesus' brother, his family. They didn't believe in him. Even people in his hometown did not believe in Jesus. So why would this writer, Luke, think it would be important for him to write down, wow, Jesus' brothers? They, they finally believed. He thinks it's important to include that. That one day they didn't believe, and then now they, they do believe. I mean, think about it from his brother, Jesus' brother's perspective. How many people in here have a big brother? I got one. 
Now imagine your big brother shows up one day and said, I'm the son of God. I was sent here uh, by the Holy Spirit, and I'm the Lord of the universe. You need to bow down and worship me. I mean, what would you tell your big brother? It's like, yeah, get out of my way. You know, I don't need to go get lunch. You know, you wouldn't pay any attention to him. That's just my big brother. He's just going on. He goes on about stuff all the time, and nobody pays attention to him. I mean, that was probably their life. It's like, that's just Jesus. He, just, he goes on about this Messiah thing all the time. They were probably thinking like that. But then everything Jesus said came true. He was tortured and murdered. He was buried. And he did raise from the dead. So all of a sudden, it's like you can then see his brothers going, he was telling the truth. We better go get with them. So Luke thinks it's important that we know, all the readers of this book, that we know Hey, Jesus' brothers finally believe. They finally follow him. And when it uses, when the, when the scripture says they were joined together, that's not just a casual, hey, let's hang out and talk about that our big brother Jesus was finally telling the truth. That's not what it is. They're not just hanging out. The word joined together comes from a Greek word, and it's pronounced homothumidon. And it, it denotes strong passionate unity. Different English translations of the Bible might say they were with one mind or with one accord or like the NIV says, joined together. It's a compound word from two Greek words, homu meaning together in unison and in thumos. It means to rush along with intense emotion. Now this group of people, they were getting ready to take the message and be witnesses to wipe religion off the face of the earth and replace that with a relationship with Jesus Christ, they better be unified. They better be together. And they were together, and not just hanging out together, but they were together with intense, purposed emotion. When people get together with intense, purposed emotion, they can accomplish things, good and bad. Think about street gangs. Think about terrorism. When those people who operate on hate get together and the emotion is tense and they want to move forward and they're unified, they can accomplish things. And even though they're evil things, they get things accomplished because when people have this homothumidon, this intense unity, things happen, good and bad. Just imagine, when I read this, I thought, gosh, what if our church... As unified as we are already, became more unified and we operated with this intense emotion that we want to connect as many people with God as possible. What if we did that? You know, right now, you've heard me share this before, only 12% of the people in Wake County are in a church, evangelical church, hearing about Jesus. That means 88% are not. Do you think if we operated with this homothumidon, Do you think we could put a dent in that number? And wouldn't it be great to get 20 years down the road and be able to look back when I'm an old man and Eddie's still a young guy and we're standing up here saying, we put a dent in that number. It's no longer 88%. It's lower because we had this focused purpose to be witnesses and change our community. That's what these people in the first century did. They had so much purpose and so much direction and so much vision that even if you don't even buy into this whole Jesus thing, 
If you just came to check it out today, you read this book, you have to agree, those people had something going on. There was something in their life that just made them breathe, eat, sleep this, and not seem too weird to the world around them, but seemed attractive enough to people came to them and wanted to know about Jesus. Could we duplicate that today? I believe we can. That's what they did, and we can do the same thing. So every time you allow the Spirit of God to have more rule in your life, every time you're a witness, no matter how much you say or how little, every time you're a witness with the faith that's in you and the kingdom of God in your life, every single time, the kingdom of God has a chance to grow. Jesus trusts us that much. He trusts his followers that much to say, here is my message. You are my only plan. I don't have any, uh, I'm not going to use skywriting. I'm not going to use something weird. You are my plan to take my message to the world. That's how much he trusts us. And that's what this first chapter of Acts is all about. Get the kingdom of God and share it with the world. And they got serious about it. The world changed. So if we get even more serious about it, just imagine how, how our world could change. So this first section of the book of Acts, the bottom line is, be a witness. Be a witness by telling, using my mouth. Maybe I've only got the courage to say, come with me to church. Come and check this out. Or maybe you can tell somebody about your faith. Be a witness by serving. Just had life point in action yesterday. People came out and served their community, our community, in the name of Christ. We've got a team going on one of our mission trips to Guatemala, which will go several times a year, by serving, there being a witness, and by showing, by being passionately joined together, not just something you hit once a week, but that passion, that homo, I already forgot how to say it, homothumidon. I could say anything, you wouldn't know, right? It's a Greek word. <laughs> but if we have that homothumidon, just imagine. Imagine how your marriage might be different. Your relationships might be different because of this intense, focused unity. We can be a witness with that, and that will change the world for the better if we do it. I challenge you this week to read the book of Acts. It's 28 chapters. It won't take you that long to read it. Some chapters are only that long, so it's a pretty short read. Read it. We've got a resource section out at the info booth. There's a book called By the Dust of Their Feet. I encourage you to go out and get it. We're almost out of them. So the first few people will get one when you go out there. You can buy it or you can order it on Amazon or we'll take orders and bring you one next week. But go by and get that and read it on your own time. And take a look at some of the resources we have out there over the summer to help us get more into this word that says of itself that it's living and active. And watch the change in your heart and life. As that happens. I'm excited about this series. This is going to really make God's word come alive in a new way to a lot of people. If you have any questions as you're reading, write them down. Send them to questions at lifepointchurch.com. The end of the series this summer, we're going to publish all of those without names. We'll just publish all the questions and all the answers that we put out there. I encourage you, read this, but more importantly, live it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this, this book, this book called Acts that that chronicles all the ways people who followed you centuries ago took your message and shared it with the world that needed to hear it. 
Father, I ask as we get deeper into your word that your spirit moves among us. Father, help us to have that intense unity that will change the world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.